everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode, we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history. And today we are going to be talking about the case of British serial killer, Robert Maudsley. Okay, so just prepare yourselves for this one today because this case is shocking in many different ways. First of all, Robert Maudsley is dubbed the most dangerous prisoner in the UK. And that's not to be confused with the most violent prisoner in the UK because that is Charles Bronson. And Charles Bronson actually happens to come up later on in this case. But no, Robert Maudsley is the most dangerous prisoner in the UK. And after carrying out some pretty gruesome and horrific crimes, Robert Maudsley has earned himself a few nicknames, such as Hannibal the Cannibal, the Brain Eater, and Spoons. So those nicknames definitely make you question what the bloody hell happens in this case. But what makes this case so infamous is that Robert Maudsley is apparently so dangerous that inside prison he is held in a maximum security glass cage underground in the basement where you have to go through 17 locked doors to get to him. Yet you heard that right. He's kept in a glass cage. Have you ever heard of something like this? And he has been held in this glass cage in the UK for 40 years. And again, that makes you question, what the hell happens in this case? Is Robert Maudsley truly that dangerous that he needs to be kept in this glass cage underground behind 17 locked doors? Well, that is what we are going to be talking about today. And there's definitely a lot of myth surrounding this case. Some of the things that Robert did have definitely become somewhat the stuff of legend over time. So I've tried to uncover the truth as best as I can. So let's dive in. Robert Maudsley was born on the 26th of June, 1953, making him a cancer. He grew up in the area of Toxteth, which is just outside the city of Liverpool. And this is where he lived with his dad, George, his mom, Jean, his two brothers, Paul and Kevin, and then his sister, Brenda. Now, in the very, very early part of Robert's childhood, we don't know too much, but we can definitely safely assume that it was not a good childhood at all. Because when Robert was just six months old, Robert and his three other siblings were taken off their parents because their parents were neglecting and abusing the children. Now, we don't know the extent of the abuse and the neglect, but what happened is that neighbors started to see that these children were being neglected and abused and reported the parents. And even though we don't know the full extent of the abuse in this early part of Robert's life, I mean, he's only six months old at this point. Given what goes on to happen later on in the case, I think it's safe to assume that the children were being physically abused, but they were also being neglected. The kind of environment that they were living in, it was dirty, unhygienic. The children never had enough food to eat. They didn't have clean clothes. So Robert and his siblings were taken away and sent to live in a Catholic orphanage in Liverpool. And I know what you're thinking. Oh my God, they've been sent to a Catholic orphanage. This is not going to go well. But Robert and his siblings actually began to thrive as soon as they went to the orphanage they were being raised by nuns. And this was the first time in their life that they actually had stability. They had clothes on their back. They always had regular meals. They almost felt like the nuns, the other children at the orphanage, that was their new family. And I just think that that's so sad that that is the first time that they felt like they had a family, that they felt like they had their basic needs met. But unfortunately, that would come to an end. Because when Robert was nine years old, so he has been living in this orphanage with his siblings for his whole life. I mean, he went there when he was six months old, so now he is nine years old. Robert's parents decided to take their children back. And I don't know why they did this. Like, why couldn't they have just left their children at this orphanage, possibly get adopted? They would have lived a much better life. So this all came about because Robert's older brother, 
Paul was actually about to be adopted. And as part of the adoption process, the orphanage needed to get permission from the biological parents. So as soon as Robert's parents found out that Paul was about to be adopted, they were like, "Uh, uh-uh, no, that's not happening. We're going to have all the children back. So Robert is now living with his biological parents again. And this was such a strange situation, especially for Robert, because he had no memories at all of his parents because like I keep saying, he was only six months old when he first went to the orphanage. His other siblings kind of did have some memories of their parents, but to Robert, he didn't even know his parents. But that wasn't the only weird thing because when Robert was in the orphanage, his parents had continued on having children. So when Robert returned, he was now living in a household of 12. Mm -hmm. This is a very big family. And it's just like, why do these people carry on having children when they clearly don't want them? So this was a huge adjustment period for Robert, everyone really. But there was one thing that didn't change and that was the abuse. Because as soon as Robert moved back into that house, the abuse started again. And I do have to give a warning now, we are gonna be talking about child abuse and also child sexual abuse. Um, So just be aware of that. If you don't wanna hear it, maybe skip forward five minutes. So now we get on to Robert's dad, George. And oh my God, this man is the devil reincarnated. He would beat all of his children, all of them. For the smallest infraction, he would beat his children. If they ever didn't do what they were told, he would beat them. And it wasn't just with his fists, which that alone is unacceptable. He would also use weapons. And the kind of things that the children were beaten for were if they were home late from school, if they didn't do their chores around the house properly. I assume if any of the children even had an opinion or spoke, they probably got beaten. And the weapons that he would choose were various household objects, pretty much whatever was closest to him, a cane, a belt, rods, and sticks. So he's a lovely man, isn't he? But he also actively encouraged all of his children to go out and commit crime. In particular, theft. He would encourage Robert and the rest of his siblings to go out and steal food so they didn't have to buy it. And if the children ever got caught for stealing, they would get beaten for being caught not because they were stealing. I also just want to point out that the family were struggling financially. And even though in an ideal world, no one would have to turn to crime to survive, I realize that it happens. But the problem is, is that George would make his children commit crime. That is the problem. Hey guys, just jumping in here with a quick word from today's sponsor, Green Chef. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating clean. They offer delicious recipes with no artificial colors or sweeteners, limited added sugar and processed ingredients. They have a ton of lean protein options like turkey, sockeye salmon and shrimp, as well as organic fruit and veg, organic cage-free eggs and plenty of whole grain options. Green Chef is also super sustainable. It's the only meal kit that is both carbon and plastic offset. Nearly all packaging is curbside recyclable and you're also reducing food waste by up to 23% versus grocery shopping. Plus everything is super easy to prepare. They have 25 minute dinners, grab and go lunches, all the ingredients are prepped, pre-portioned and ready to go. A meal that I tried lately was the sage brown butter chicken piccata. And oh my God, it was so delicious. The recipe was super easy to follow along with. All of the ingredients were so fresh and I just had so much fun cooking it. Having a little recipe card, I don't know, it just makes it so fun to cook along with and it tasted better than anything that I could make myself. So if you wanted to try out Green Chef for yourself, go to greenchef.com forward slash 60 criminal makeup and use the code 60CriminalMakeup to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com forward slash criminal makeup and use the code 60CriminalMakeup to get free shipping plus 60% off Green Chef, which is the number one meal kit for eating well. (music) 
So that was George, the dad. But where was the mom, Jean, in all of this? Well, she was completely complicit in the abuse. She never actually laid a finger on the children herself, but she never stopped the abuse. She would actually watch it and sometimes encourage it. She would also report her children if they ever did anything wrong to their father, knowing full well that their dad would beat them up. So even though she technically didn't lay a finger on her children herself, she is just as much to blame. And this in particular really bothered Robert that his mom never stuck up for them. He felt completely abandoned by his mom. And even though all of the children were abused by George, the worst beatings were always saved for Robert. And that is because Robert would try and stick up and protect his other siblings from the beatings. He would actually try and stand up to his dad, which only resulted in the beatings being worse for him. And we do have some more abuse to talk about, but I just want to talk about the conditions of the house, which I did touch on a second ago, but they were absolutely disgusting. I mean, this house, I don't know the exact size, but I do know the area. So the house couldn't be more than a two or three bedroom house, which is nowhere near big enough for the amount of people living in this house and the conditions were absolutely disgusting. Like I said, no one ever cleaned, so it was really dirty. Robert and his 11 siblings were crammed in like one bedroom. There was not enough mattresses for everyone. So people would literally get clothes or blankets to use as a mattress to lie and sleep on. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. All of these children just lying on the floor and that is the only place they have to sleep. There was no clean clothes. There was barely any food. The children would often go without food if they hadn't stolen enough that day. So like I said, George had taken a particular disliking to Robert because Robert was the only one standing up to him. The beatings that Robert received were always worse. They were always more extreme, more violent. He would also get punished more for lesser offences. There was also one occasion, and I don't exactly know what Robert did to result in this punishment, but there was one occasion where Robert was locked in a room for six months. Six months, Robert was just locked in a room. And this would happen quite a lot where Robert was kept and locked in a room, but there was just this one period where he was locked in this room for six months and his dad would just go in a few times a day, like four to six times, just to beat Robert. Robert didn't have any contact with anyone else. He was completely alone other than when his dad went into the room to beat him. There was one time when George went into the room and he was holding a 22 caliber air rifle, not to actually shoot Robert, but to use it as an instrument to beat him with. And he hit Robert so hard with the air rifle that it actually broke in two. And can you imagine the force that you need to hit someone with a gun to make it break. And of course, this left Robert in excruciating pain and George just left the room laughing. And this is just absolutely horrific, but it gets worse because not only would George enter the room to physically abuse his son, but he also went into the room to sexually abuse him as well. It just doesn't get any worse. Like Robert's childhood is absolutely horrific. I don't know the exact details of the sexual assault, but I do know that Robert was raped by his dad. And of course, this whole ordeal, the physical, the sexual abuse, the neglect, it left huge psychological scars for Robert. And Robert's childhood and his experience, especially with his dad, would definitely be a driving force in Robert committing crime and the kinds of crimes that he committed. And then suddenly, I don't know the exact date, but it was approximately 12 months after Robert returned to the family home from the orphanage, George just suddenly came out and said, I don't want Robert anymore. Like, he can go away. He can be sent back. And this is when George sent Robert into the care system. But it was just Robert that he didn't want anymore. He wanted all of the other children. He just didn't want Robert. There are some sources out there that say social services became aware of the abuse and took Robert away from the home. But I don't know if I believe this because if social services became aware of the abuse to Robert, the other children were also being abused. So why weren't they taken as well? But I don't know, that could be the case. All we know is that he was sent back into the care system and 
he was fostered. And the other siblings did inquire to where Robert was. They were like, where has Robert gone? Where is he? And George told Robert's siblings that Robert had died. And all of the children believed that Robert was dead, which is just so heartbreaking because Robert is now completely on his own. This was completely different from when he went to the orphanage because he still had his siblings with him. So now Robert, who is approximately age 10, is now being fostered. And unfortunately, we don't have any information about Robert's life from this moment between the ages of 10 and 16. But from 16, we do know that Robert was still in foster care and he decided to run away. So the pure fact that he decided to run away, I think it's safe to assume that foster care was the best because why would he run away if it was like a good life? So at 16 he decides to run away and he decides to run away to London. Now I don't know why he chose London. I assume it's because it's the capital. Maybe he thought that there was going to be more opportunities for him for work, to earn money. So he arrives in London and he thinks to himself, right, I'm really going to turn my life around now. I'm in control of my life for the first time ever and I am going to turn it around. But it didn't work out that way because he was only 16 years old. He arrived in London with no possessions. He had no money. He had no job. And this meant that he was forced to live on the streets. And living on the streets, this led him down a path where he started dabbling into drugs and alcohol. And it wasn't long until he had a full-on drug addiction. But with this drug addiction, he needed to fund it. So first, Robert did turn to crime. He was pickpocketing, committing theft, but that was not earning him enough money. So he did turn to sex work to fund his addiction. And this is pretty much what Robert's teenage the rest of his teenage years were like. He went through constant cycles of homelessness and drug addiction, sex work. And another thing that is just so heartbreaking is that Robert was raped by an acquaintance. But this must have been so traumatizing for him, especially because of what happened to him as a child. That must have brought back so many memories. So this lifestyle that Robert was leading was having a huge toll on his mental health and he just couldn't cope. He couldn't cope with life anymore. He couldn't take it. And he did make several attempts to take his own life. And in the end, Robert did decide to seek help. And he would spend the next few years going in and out of psychiatric hospitals, trying to get help. And during these hospital visits, Robert would really open up about his childhood and what he had gone through, hoping that someone would help him. And there was one thing that he kept repeatedly saying to the hospital staff, and that is that he was hearing voices voices in his head and those voices were telling him to go and kill his parents. He kept repeating that same thing, I need to kill my parents, I want to kill my parents. And this is clearly in response to how his parents treated him as a child and this should be taken seriously. But unfortunately, this wasn't taken seriously. Even though Robert himself had gone to these hospitals, he was trying to get help, he was being very open, the hospital staff didn't really do much about it. It. And that just really baffles me. I mean, oh my God, this man is coming to you. He's telling you that he's hearing voices in his head and the voices are saying that he needs to go and kill his parents and you don't do anything. I mean, when he was going to these hospitals, this was the early 1970s and mental health services back then are nothing like they are today. But I still feel like they should have taken him seriously. I still feel like maybe they should have done something. And I really hope that if someone like Robert Maudsley went to a psychiatric hospital, went for help today, that something would be done. It's just so sad that he's actually wanting help. He's trying to get help, but no one is helping him. So each time Robert went to the hospital, he was released without any treatment. And unfortunately, these voices inside of his head would not go away. Things would only go downhill from here for Robert. And this is where we get onto Robert committing his first murder. So now we get to March of 1974 and Robert is 20 years old at this point. So he's obviously been living in London for four years. And for pretty much the whole of those four years, he was working as a sex worker. And it was when Robert was 20 years old that a pretty significant incident happened because it all started when he met a man 
man called John Farrell. Now, John was 30 years old. He was a builder and he lived in an area called Wood Green in London. And it was in March of 1974 that John became a client of Robert's. Now, finding out the relationship between Robert and John was very, very difficult. There was a lot of conflicting sources because some sources that I saw said that they were in a relationship and they had been dating for about six months. But then there were other sources that said that John was a client and this was the first time they had met. So the truth is not exactly clear to what their relationship actually was, but it was probably somewhere in the middle. From my research, I feel like John was probably a regular client of Robert's and Robert was probably very comfortable with him because he was a regular client, probably trusted him. I wouldn't say that they were in a relationship, um, but I also could be wrong on that. So yeah, just bear that in mind. But what we do know is that a day in March of 1974, John and Robert were due to meet up for sex. Robert was to make his way to John's flat in Wood Green. So this is exactly what Robert did. And he entered the flat. He was high on drugs at this point, which was quite a common occurrence for Robert. So the two of them, I don't know exactly what happened, but I feel like we can all just imagine it. They're talking, you know, they're getting comfortable. They start undressing and they get into bed with each other and they're falling around. And then all of a sudden, John jumps out of bed, goes to his dresser in his bedroom and pulls out a stack of photographs. He takes these photographs back to the bed where Robert is and he shows Robert the photos. And he says to Robert, hey, what do you think of these photos? And when Robert saw these photos, he was absolutely horrified because the photographs that John was showing him showed numerous children being sexually abused by John himself. I know, let that sink in. John is showing Robert photos of him sexually abusing children. I think some of the images were just of children as well. I don't think John was in every single photo, but all of these photos were indecent images of children. And John is showing these photos to Robert, hoping that Robert will also get off on these photos. John even asks Robert if he can help recreate some of the scenes from the photos. And Robert is just in bed trying to process all of this. And Robert has said himself that his brain, it just went completely foggy. Robert started to have all of these flashbacks to his own childhood where his dad sexually abused him. And of course, we know that Robert is still hearing those voices telling him to kill his parents. So when Robert saw these photos, he immediately saw his own father in John and he snapped. It was literally like a switch went off in his brain and he was listening to those voices and he jumped out of bed. He found a piece of rope on the floor, ran towards John, and immediately started to strangle him with the rope. John was struggling, he was trying to get away, but Robert had a firm grip, and he held this rope around John's neck until reportedly John's face turned blue, and Robert did not let go until John Farrell lost his life. But Robert was not done with just simply killing John because he was still high on drugs, he was still listening to those voices, he was still filled with rage. So even though he had just killed John Farrell, he picked up a knife and started stabbing his body multiple times. He then found a hammer which he used to smash John's head in. And then finally, Robert started to calm down. His rage started to disappear. He started to sober up and he just stood there over John's body, realizing what he had done. And even when Robert was sober, he felt completely 100% justified in what he did. In his eyes, he had just freed the world of another child molester. And Robert believed that John deserved to die so he could protect any more children that John could abuse. But even though he felt completely justified in what he had done, he still knew that it was wrong. He still knew that he should face punishment for what he had done. And I really do believe that Robert in that moment believed that he did deserve punishment for what he had done. But he just simply didn't care because the person that he had killed was a pedophile. So Robert later that same day decides to hand himself 
in. He walks to a police station and hands himself in voluntarily. So when he hands himself in at the police station, he literally just goes up to the front desk and says, I've murdered somebody and I have to tell you about it. So immediately the police take him into an interview room to be questioned. And the police question Robert for hours. And Robert was completely upfront about everything. He was not trying to hide the fact about anything that he had done. He told the police, the man deserved to die and I was just trying to protect future children. And after the detailed confession, the police took Robert into custody to await trial. However, when Robert's case finally did go to trial, they took one look at his file. They saw that he had suffered horrific child abuse, which was physical and sexual. They saw that he was struggling with drug addictions and that he had been in and out of psychiatric hospitals for years. They also saw that he had made several suicide attempts and that he was hearing voices in his head telling him to kill his parents. And after they saw this in his file, they said, you know what, this person, he is not fit to stand trial. So instead of facing trial for murder, Robert instead was sent to a high security psychiatric hospital. And this is when Robert Maudsley was sent to none other than the notorious Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital. So Broadmoor Hospital, this is actually the first case I'm covering where Broadmoor has come up. So just in case you don't know what Broadmoor is, um, I'm sure if you're from the UK, you know what Broadmoor is. But Broadmoor, oh my God. God. It's a very infamous, very notorious place. I think a lot of people do actually think that it's a prison, but it's not. It's actually a hospital. So Broadmoor opened back in 1863. It was actually the world's first asylum, which obviously that's what they were called back then. It was the world's first asylum for the criminally insane. And it was designed to not only house people that were criminally insane, but also to treat them. And that is essentially what Broadmoor is still today. It's for people that have committed crime that are not fit to stand trial. They have been deemed criminally insane. It is not safe for them to be in a normal regular prison and they need treatment. And Broadmoor has housed some pretty infamous criminals. And I can't list them all because they have been quite a few, but the Yorkshire Ripper was there, Peter Sutcliffe. Ronnie Cray from the Cray Twins was there. Obviously, Robert Maudsley was there. The UK cannibal Peter Bryan was also there. Charles Bronson was also there that I mentioned earlier. Broadmoor is also linked to Jimmy Savile. Yeah, that was one of the places that Jimmy Savile would go to. I think he had a room in Broadmoor. And it's like, why Jimmy? Why Jimmy Savile? Do you need a room? in Broadmoor. I think we all know why. And I studied about Broadmoor quite a lot in university. I did a whole assignment about Broadmoor as part of my mental health law module. And to be honest, I feel like I could probably do a whole video on Broadmoor. It is a very, very fascinating place. So Robert Maudsley enters Broadmoor in 1974 and Robert is actually having a great time. There is definitely a little bit of possibly a misconception that psychiatric hospitals are not punishment. I know there is a little bit of controversy surrounding when people get sent to a psychiatric hospital because a lot of people think people need to be punished. They have to be sent to prison. But psychiatric hospitals, they're no walk in the park. I just want to say that it still is essentially a prison. You can't leave. Sometimes going to a psychiatric hospital as well can actually be worse because when you are sent to prison, you are given a sentence. But when you are sent to somewhere like Broadmoor, you're held there indefinitely. There is possibly no end in sight. But anyway, for Robert, he was actually having a good time. I think someone like Robert, he actually thrived from stability and routine, which is something that he hadn't had in his life since he left the orphanage. He was also getting the treatment that he so desperately needed as well. He was also socializing in Broadmoor, which is something that he hadn't really been able to do that much either in his life. He still refused to socialize with child molesters. But he definitely made it very clear to everyone his distaste of sex offenders and paedophiles. But apart from his extreme distaste for child sex offenders, for the first three years that Robert was in Broadmoor, it was all peaceful. But that wouldn't last much longer because the incident that I'm about to talk about is pretty infamous. And it's not just infamous and significant to Broadmoor, it's probably one of the most infamous things to happen in the UK prison system 
ever. So we're now in 1977. Robert is currently 23 years old. And this is when he gets introduced to another patient at Broadmoor, a man called David Alan Francis. And not long after the two of them were introduced to one another, Robert found out that David Francis was a paedophile. Now, at a very similar time, Robert had also made friends with another patient called David Cheeseman, who is another David, and that is going to get very confusing. So I'm just going to refer to him as Cheeseman, which again is a very unusual last name, but I'm just going to call him Cheeseman, okay? So it saves the confusion. So Robert and Cheeseman struck up a conversation, and Robert expresses to Cheeseman that he doesn't like David Francis because he's a paedophile and he wants to kill kill him. And when Robert tells Cheeseman about his plan, Cheeseman, instead of being horrified, he just says, okay, I'm in. And this is when the two of them put their plan into motion for them to murder David Francis. And the plan involved Robert creating a weapon because he's in Broadmoor right now. They don't have access to weapons. They don't even have knives in the kitchen. They only have plastic spoons and forks to eat with. So Robert keeps one of the plastic spoons back, which to be honest, he should never have been allowed to do that because I feel like in a hospital like Broadmoor, there definitely should be more security and they should be more aware of what the patients are doing. But Robert was able to take a plastic spoon and he was able to file down the handle. And this took him a while to file this down until he had a sharp blade. And then in February of 1977, Robert put his plan in action. So the day started with a few of the patients playing football. Now, Robert Cheeseman and David Francis were all out playing football. So then at around 11am when the game had finished, Robert Cheeseman and David Francis started to make their way back into the main building. And this is when Robert asked one of the staff members if they could open up the changing room. So the staff member opened up the changing room. Robert Cheeseman and David Francis all went in the changing room. But once the three of them were inside that room, Robert acted so quickly and he slammed that door in the nurse's face so they couldn't come in because obviously the nurse was just about to follow them into the changing room because no patient can be without a staff member. But Robert slammed the door, he barricaded the door, leaving the nurse trapped outside. And this is when Robert and Cheeseman launched their attack on David Francis. And this attack on David Francis has definitely become one of the most infamous incidents that's ever happened in the UK prison system. Because over the next nine hours, you heard that right, nine hours, Robert and Cheeseman essentially tortured David Francis to death. And the attack was vicious. Firstly, Robert took out some wire that he had ripped from a record player and bound David Francis's hands and feet. Next, Robert and Cheeseman just took it in turns, punching him and kicking him. And they did this over and over again. Then they started slamming his head against the floor. And that is absolutely crazy. How are they in this high security hospital and have managed to barricade themselves into a changing room? And now they are essentially torturing another patient to death. And what is probably the most bizarre thing is that on the door of the changing room, there was a little window, you know, those little windows that are in the doors and staff members were literally just looking through the window watching everything happen. I mean, obviously they were trying to get in the changing room, but the barricade was so strong, they could not get in. And that just blows my mind. How was this possible? Next, Robert and Cheeseman pull out their makeshift knives and just start stabbing David Francis all over his body. And the staff outside the room could hear David Francis saying, God, please, no, oh God. And the attack continued like this for nine hours. And then eventually around 8pm that evening, the screaming stopped. After nine hours of torturing David Francis, David Francis had now lost his life. And Robert and Cheeseman just grabbed David's body and held it up in the air for all of the staff members to see through that little window. And then after this, they put his body back on the ground. Robert calmly removed the barricade, opened the door and just walked out of the changing room as if 
nothing had happened. He was immediately grabbed by guards and staff members rushed in to see the horror scene that was in front of them. It turned out that David Francis was not only strangled to death by Robert, but they also found that David Francis's head had been, quote, cracked open like a boiled egg. There were apparently pieces of his skull on the floor. They also found the plastic spoon lodged in his ear and apparently some of his brain was missing. And the staff saw the spoon. They saw that some of the brain was missing. They put two and two together and they thought, oh my God, Robert has eaten some of David Francis's brain. And this is how Robert Maudsley became known as the brain eater. This is also why he became known as Spoons because he used a spoon to murder somebody else and he would be known as the brain eater for years to come. And that was just unbelievable. I still cannot get over that that murder happened in a high security hospital. These things should not happen in Broadmoor. This is just my opinion, okay? Not pointing fingers at anyone, but they were in that room for nine hours torturing David Francis. I just feel like if the staff really wanted to get in that room, surely they would have found a way. Nine hours is a very long time, but I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. Maybe the staff did try and get in. Maybe they truly couldn't get in. And if that is the case, it's just truly unbelievable that something like this was able to happen. But also the fact that the staff were watching through that window. And this incident became huge, huge in the British press. The rumor that Robert had eaten someone's brain had leaked to the press and the press had a field day with this. You can imagine the headlines, can't you? Broadmoor inmate eats other inmates' brain with a spoon. But it turns out that he didn't actually eat any brain. No, this is actually one of the myths surrounding this case because I do feel like a lot of people, when you say Robert Maudsley, they think, ah, he's the brain eater. Well, actually he's not. None of the brain was missing at all. And I just don't know why staff did think that Robert had eaten part of his brain just because there was a spoon lodged in his ear. It was a rumor that was possibly made up by the staff and then the press just ran with it because they want to sell newspapers. Even though it's myth, even though it's not true, people don't really care because sometimes the truth is just not as entertaining. So after the murder, even though from his first murder, he was deemed unfit to stand trial, after his second murder, miraculously, he was now fit to stand trial, which honestly doesn't really make sense to me because his first murder, he committed outside. He was deemed unfit to stand trial for that murder and he was sent to a psychiatric hospital. His second murder, he committed inside a psychiatric hospital and now all of a sudden he is deemed fit to stand trial. So Robert and Cheeseman went to trial and Robert showed no remorse for his crimes yet again because he believed that David Francis, because he was a paedophile, he deserved to die. And Robert and Cheeseman were both found guilty of manslaughter and they were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And this sentence was to be served in a normal prison, which again, doesn't really make sense to me. It's like clearly both of them needed help. They committed this murder in a psychiatric hospital. Not that he shouldn't be punished for murder. You can't just go around murdering people, but it just really doesn't make sense to me. And I just feel like they wanted to make an example out of Robert Maudsley. They wanted to punish him and they thought, well, you know what? Sending him back to Broadmoor is clearly not a punishment. He's having too much of a good time there. He's already murdered another person there he needs to just go to a normal prison. And maybe there was an element because he had been in a psychiatric hospital for three years and receiving treatment for those three years, maybe they did think that he was treated and recovered from his mental health issues. I don't know. And maybe they thought, you know what, it's about time he went to a normal prison now. I don't know. But regardless, Robert Morsley was sent to Wakefield Prison which again is another pretty infamous place in the UK. Wakefield Prison is actually referred to as Monster Mansion. And it's referred to as Monster Mansion because, quote, the large number of high-profile and high-risk sex offenders and murderers held there. And Wakefield is another place that has housed some very, very infamous criminals from the UK. One of them being Harold Shipman. We all know who he is, Dr. Death, Ian 
Ian Huntley. And I'm sure if you're from the UK, you know who Ian Huntley is. Jeremy Bamber is also still there to this day. He is the White House farm murders. John Cooper is still there as well, I think. Um, he was the bullseye killer. Levi Belfield was there. He was a serial killer. Ian Watkins is also there as well, who was the lead singer of Lost Prophets. And also Charles Bronson was there, who is known as the most violent prisoner in the UK. Yeah, so pretty infamous people, some pretty, pretty bad people there. So Wakefield is the home to very high profile murderers and sex offenders. And what does Robert hate more than anything in the world? sex offenders. So why the hell did they send him to a place that has so many? What did they expect to happen? Robert Maudsley, even himself, warned authorities that he wants to kill sex offenders. But no one listened. No one took him seriously. Or did they want him to go there to maybe clean up a bit. So we now get to July of 1978. Robert is currently 25 years old. And at this point, he had been at Wakefield Prison for roughly about a year. And so far, his time at Wakefield, it went pretty smoothly. But it seems like Robert was possibly just biding his time because that was all about to change. Because in July of 1978, Robert decided that he couldn't take it anymore. He was still hearing the voices inside of his head. They were still still telling him to kill his parents. And in Wakefield, he was surrounded by sex offenders. He just couldn't handle it anymore. He wanted revenge on anyone that harmed children. And the rage inside of him got to a point where he exploded. And he decided that he was going to go on a killing spree. He wanted to kill sex offenders, in particular child molesters. But to be honest, at this point, Robert didn't really care if they were just child sex offenders. He just wanted to kill sex offenders. And for some reason, he decided that he wanted to kill at least seven. So again, he fashioned a weapon out of a plastic spoon, exactly what he did in Broadmoor. I am sorry, who is allowing Robert Maudsley to have plastic spoons? or any plastic cutlery. Who is allowing this knowing his history? Seems a bit suspicious, doesn't it? So anyway, he made this makeshift knife with a plastic spoon and it was on the 28th of July, 1978, that he decided that this was going to be the day that he carried out his mission. So his plan was to lure sex offenders back into his cell and then he wanted to kill the sex offenders in his cell. So on this day, he was outside of his cell, he was going going up to known sex offenders and he was trying to get them back in his cell. Pretty much everyone was declining his offer. I mean, Robert Maudsley, his reputation had followed him to Wakefield. People knew what he was like. People knew that he was capable of murder and murdering sex offenders. And this is when Robert came across another prisoner called Salney Darwood. And he agreed to go back to Robert's cell. Now, Salney Darwood was 46 years old and him and Robert actually did know each other because Salney was actually teaching Robert French in the prison. Now, now, Salney was in prison for murdering his wife. He was not a child molester. However, he was on the sex offenders register. Now, it's not exactly known if Robert knew this, but it's almost like, well, why else would he target Salney if he didn't know that he was a registered sex offender? And being a registered sex offender was clearly enough for Robert. So Robert lures Salney back to his cell. Now, because they knew each other, Salney probably didn't think that this was weird or suspicious. And as soon as Salney entered Robert's cell, Robert pounced. He pulled out his makeshift knife and just started stabbing Salni all over his body. He stabbed him in the back, in the neck, in the head. Robert didn't even give Salni an opportunity to run away or fight back. And before long, Salni just literally fell on the ground. Robert then pulled out a piece of string. He looped it round Salni's neck and held it tight for several minutes. Whilst he was strangling Salni, he was also repeatedly smashing his head on the floor. And then then Sauni Darwood 
lost his life. Robert then rolled Sauni's body underneath his bed in his prison cell. He then cleaned himself up in his sink and he walked out of his cell as if nothing had happened. He was then back out looking for his next victim. I just can't believe that he was able to just murder somebody and nobody seems to have noticed. I mean, he was stabbing Sauni all over his body. I can't imagine that that was a very quiet attack. He was also repeatedly smashing his head on the ground. He would have been making a lot of noise. And you're telling me that not one prison guard heard that? Not one person heard this attack and came to investigate? It all seems very weird. So again, Robert is trying to lure any sex offender back into his cell. But again, he's having no luck. No one wants to go with him. To be honest, they probably heard what happened and thought to themselves, hell no, am I going back to his cell? Because I can understand the prisoners hearing the attack and not wanting to report it. But what I don't understand is the prison guards. But anyway, Robert is looking for anyone to murder and he has been walking around trying to find a sex offender, trying to find a sex offender that will come back into his cell for an hour now. He's getting impatient. He wants to kill another sex offender. And I just want to point out as well that Sauni's body is just under his bed in his cell and Robert is just walking around. It's crazy. You would literally think that there is no security in these psychiatric hospitals or prisons. It's ridiculous. So Robert decided he was going to have to change his plan. The plan of luring someone back to his cell wasn't working. And this is when he walked past another cell who belonged to a man called William Roberts. Now, William was 56 years old and him and Robert didn't know each other, but Robert knew from William's reputation that William was a child molester. And William was just in his cell. He was lying on his bed with his face down having a nap. And Robert thought, you know what? He is a child molester. I am going to act. He is going to be my next victim. Robert acts very quickly. He runs into the cell. He pulls out his makeshift knife and just starts stabbing William in the back. William woke up suddenly. He rolled over. He tried to defend himself. But Robert, in a frenzied attack, just carried on stabbing, stabbing anyone that he could. He stabbed William in the arms, in the chest, in the face, in the neck. And after a few minutes of stabbing William, Robert realized that William had lost his life. But Robert wasn't finished there. He dragged William's body out of the bed, grabbed his head and repeatedly started smashing William's head against the wall. He was smashing his head with so much force that plaster was actually coming off the wall. And once William's skull was completely smashed, like completely. Robert threw his body to the ground and just left the cell. So now Robert had killed two more people. Now his initial goal was to kill seven people, but he struggled. He couldn't find anybody else. And Robert seemed to be content with that. He was like, you know what? That is a good day's worth of work. So he walked straight up to the prison guard's office, put down his makeshift knife and said, quote, it looks like you'll be short two on roll call later. And again, what the actual hell. That second murder as well wouldn't exactly be quiet. He was smashing William's head against the wall. That would have been very, very loud as well. You got to think of the acoustics in a prison. That would have been so loud. I just don't know how he was allowed to do this. He killed Salney over an hour before he killed William. I do not buy that nobody at that prison knew. It just doesn't make sense to me because Robert all along has made it very, very clear how he feels about child sex offenders. He told authorities, I will kill more sex offenders. He literally said it. Did people not believe him? I mean, he's proven that he is willing to murder. It just all seems suspicious to me, okay? It does. So following the third and fourth murders, just want to point out that Robert is now a serial killer. He was again facing trial for murder. During this trial, Robert again showed no remorse for what he had done. He thought that he had done the world a favor. He also said during the trial that when he murdered Salni and William, he was picturing his parents. And we all know that he's hearing voices and those voices are Telling him to kill his parents. This all does go back to the abuse that he suffered from his parents. He also said that the violent rage directed at his victims was actually directed at his mom and dad because the attacks were very violent, very frenzied, 
such aggression. Robert also said, quote, when I kill, I have my parents in mind. If I had killed my parents in 1970, none of these people would have died. If I had killed them, then I would be walking around as a free man without a care in the world. Following this, Robert was convicted of two more murders. He received two more life sentences. These sentences were to be served in a prison, not a psychiatric hospital. But it was at this moment that it was decided that Robert Maudsley was too dangerous. He was too dangerous to be in general population. He now needed to be in solitary confinement for the rest of his sentence. So Robert was placed in solitary confinement. And obviously we spoke a little bit about the cell that he is being held in in the beginning, but he wasn't held in that cell straight away. In 1979, he was just held in a regular solitary confinement cell. But then a few years later in 1982, a news crew visited Wakefield Prison and they did a report on Robert Maudsley and his crimes. You can actually see some of the footage of the interview I've got to say it's not the best footage, but you can see some of it. When this interview aired, it obviously talked about Robert's crimes, the fact that he had murdered three people in prison, one person outside, the fact that he was a brain eater. And when this interview aired, there was public outrage. Apparently, people thought that the prison system should be doing more to punish someone like Robert Maudsley. And it was when this interview aired that the British press gave Robert Maudsley the title of being the most dangerous prisoner in the UK a title, a name that he still holds to this day. And there was a lot of public pressure for the prison system to punish Robert Maudsley. You've got to punish him more. It's not enough that he's in solitary confinement. You have to punish him more. So under public pressure, this is when Wakefield Prison built Robert Maudsley his own custom glass cell, which is essentially a cage, a glass cage. So in 1983, this custom cell was built for Robert and this is when he moved in. So Robert's cell was built next to other solitary confinement cells. It was 5.5 meters by 4.5 meters. It was pretty small, but it was a little bit bigger than the average cell. And I keep calling it a glass cell. It wasn't actually made of glass. Just a lot of people say glass. It was actually made of perspex plastic, which is like really strong reinforced plastic, um, but it looks like glass and I'm just going to say glass, okay? But it was made of glass, so Robert had no privacy. So he could be observed and monitored 24-7 because he's that dangerous. He had a concrete slab for a bed. You heard that right, concrete slab with the tiniest, thinnest mattress on. That was his bed. The only other furniture in the cage was a table and a chair, which were made of cardboard, obviously reinforced cardboard, but still made of cardboard. There was a toilet and a sink, which were both bolted to the floor. And that is the cell. And the toilet reportedly would often back up, leaving that whole glass cage smelling like a sewer. Also, I couldn't find a definitive answer of what this glass cage actually looks like. There are some sources that say all four walls are made of the Perspex plastic. And then there are other sources that say it's just the one wall that is glass and the other three walls are brick. But no photos of Robert's cell have been released to the public. So we don't know. This is another part of the case that is a bit mythical. We don't actually know what this glass prison cell looks like. But apparently the film Silence of the Lambs, which features Hannibal Lecter, if you've seen that film, you know that Hannibal Lecter is kept in a glass cell. And apparently that cell used in the film Silence of the Lambs was inspired by the cell that Robert Maudsley is kept in. So I feel like we can probably assume that Robert Maudsley's cell looks somewhat similar to the cell in The Silence of the Lambs. Also, that is another reason why Robert Maudsley's nickname is Hannibal the Cannibal because of the link to Hannibal Lecter, the fact that he's a brain eater. So Robert was now living in this glass cell. And as you can imagine, the conditions were absolutely horrible. So he was kept in this cell for 23 hours a day, every single day. He was allowed out of his cell for just one hour a day. And for that hour, he was not allowed to mix with any 
eight other prisoners. He was escorted to the yard for his one hour exercise. And he was always escorted by six prison guards. Wherever Robert went, he had to be with six prison guards because that is how dangerous he was, which I think is a bit dramatic. Like you really need six, like that, that seems a bit much, doesn't it? And then to get back to Robert's cell, you had to go through 17 locked doors. Because Robert Sal was underground, it was essentially in the dungeons of Wakefield Prison and you had to go through 17 locked doors to get there. Which again seems a bit dramatic, like 17 doors, like seriously. And the conditions that Robert was living in was taking its toll on him. I mean solitary confinement, I know that it really does divide opinions, but being isolated from literally everyone doesn't do anyone any good. Robert's hair, it grew really really long, it was really greasy, he wasn't allowed to have it cut. His skin became incredibly pale, almost translucent, because he didn't have access really to natural light. And also because of his lack of interaction with other prisoners, but also prison guards, like literally no one spoke to him, his speech started to be affected, which I never really thought about until this case, but of course your speech is going to be affected if you're not talking to anybody. And in the the interview that Robert gave, he does speak about the fact that his speech is affected and you can hear it in his voice. He's actually quite hard to understand. There is evidence of mental deterioration. My speech has been affected. Uh, Mr. Hogan, a good friend of mine, finds it difficult to comprehend what I say. Also in the interview, Robert talks about how lonely and unhappy he is. He just feels like, what is the point of him even living? He's just permanently isolated. He's not allowed to do anything. He's just in this glass box. No, no officer takes any interest and I, re and, uh, I resent that because uh, they, are, they only seem to be concerned with opening the door and then making sure I get back in as soon as possible. And every time I see an officer pass, I think, well, you know, he could just stop and talk if he wanted to. And Robert was held in these conditions for decades, right here in the UK. And the photos, the most recent photos that we have of him were taken in the 80s. And these are the last pictures we have of him. We don't have any later pictures of him. Now, over the years, Robert has left his glass cage on a number of occasions. In the early 90s, he was actually sent to another secure hospital for treatment. He was still held in solitary confinement so he's actually never left solitary confinement and he was actually in this hospital for three years still in solitary confinement like I said but he was actually making progress he was actually opening up he was responding really well to his treatment the doctor that was treating him thought that there was actually a chance of rehabilitation Robert seemed to be letting go of some of his childhood trauma but then all of a sudden the prison system decided nope we don't want him to have treatment anymore and Robert was removed from the high security hospital back into his glass cage. In the late 90s, he was also transferred to a different prison in Milton Keynes. Again, he was still kept in solitary confinement. He only spent a short stint in this prison though. And the prison in Milton Keynes, even though he was still in solitary confinement, the conditions were still a little bit better than the glass cage because he was actually able to interact a little bit with the other prisoners and the prison guards. And the prison guards at Milton Keynes also treated him with a little bit more respect and actually spoke to him. Sometimes they would also play chess with him. Again, this was all taken away from him and he was put back in his glass cage. And then in the year 2000, he had been in solitary confinement for 20 years. Anyone being in solitary confinement for that long with no break, oh my God. Robert did write a letter asking if his conditions, his solitary confinement could be relaxed a little bit. He felt like he wasn't a danger to other prisoners anymore. And he felt like he deserved a chance to be in general population again, but his request was denied. He also, made a request if he could have a pet budgie just for some company like he was so lonely which he quote promised he wouldn't eat but again this was denied and then following this Robert felt like he had no other option he made an appeal to the public stating that he should be given permission to die 
he wanted to take a cyanide pill because he just thought, well, what's the point in me living? Like, I'm in this glass box. They're not going to let me out. But again, this request was denied. Robert went on to say, quote, the prison authorities see me as a problem and their solution has been to put me in solitary confinement and throw away the key to bury me alive in a concrete coffin. I am left to stagnate, vegetate, and to regress. My life in solitary is one long period of unbroken depression. And to this very day, literally right now, Robert Maudsley is still being held in that glass cage underground. He has spent over 40 years in solitary confinement, most of which has been in that glass cage. And that literally just blows my mind. I can't believe that a prison cell like the one that Robert Maudsley is in even exists. Now, over the years, the conditions in the glass cage have improved. He eventually was given a TV so he could watch TV in his room. He has also been given a PlayStation 2. But more importantly, Robert has started to reconnect with his family. At some point during his prison stay, his brothers actually learned that he wasn't dead. Because if you remember right at the beginning of the story, Robert's dad told his other siblings that Robert had died. They for most of their lives thought that their brother Robert was dead. When they discovered that Robert was actually alive and in prison, they got back in touch with him. And eventually they were finally able to visit Robert and Robert finally had some company. And over the years, Robert has formed a very close relationship with his nephew, Gavin, who has spoken on quite a few documentaries about his uncle and the conditions that he lives in. And Robert shares a lot of letters with Gavin where he talks about his interests. He's interested in classical music and fine art and poetry. And Robert is actually really intelligent. He has a genius level IQ. Also, I didn't really know where to fit this in, but in Robert's later years in prison, he actually formed a somewhat infamous relationship with Charles Bronson, who we have mentioned a couple of times during this video. Charles Bronson is known as the most violent prisoner in the UK. Well, let's just say that Charles Bronson and Robert Maudsley are actually enemies, which is just so bizarre. They fell out over something quite stupid. Charles Bronson wanted to gift Robert Maudsley a watch and Robert denied the gift. And that's pretty much it. And now they have a feud, Charles Bronson, hates Robert Maudsley. I think the falling out does go a little bit deeper than that, but it does seem a little bit like petty. Charles Bronson is definitely a character in himself. Maybe I'll have to do a video on Charles Bronson at some point. But anyway, Robert Maudsley is still in his glass cell right now. Like he's there right now. And he still continues to appeal being in solitary confinement. But every single time he appeals, it's denied. So Robert is currently 69 years old and he has been in prison for 48 years, making him the longest serving prisoner ever in the UK. And he has been in solitary confinement for 43 years, meaning that he's actually almost broken the record for the longest time ever for a person to be in solitary confinement. That world record is currently held by an American man. He spent 44 years in solitary confinement before he was released, but Robert Maudsley is probably going to break that record, which means that Robert Maudsley is going to hold the world record for how long someone has been held in solitary confinement. And that was the case of Robert Maudsley, the most dangerous prisoner in the UK. I told you there was a lot to unpack. Now, Robert Maudsley definitely divides opinions. Some people think that he is a vigilante, that he kills bad people, he only kills sex offenders, and that he is somewhat of a hero. And if you look online, there is definitely a lot of support for Robert Maudsley and what he has done. But then other people think that he deserves to be in the glass cage, that he is a serial killer, that he is a danger to the public, he is a danger to other prisoners, and he deserves to be punished. And I I have seen the argument that the murder that Robert committed outside of prison, the murder of John Farrell, John Farrell sexually abused children and by Robert murdering him, Robert actually protected future children from being abused by John Farrell. But then if we go by that argument, then why did he kill three more people in prison? 
one of them was obviously in Broadmoor, but why did he kill three more people in prison? They, at that moment, were no threat to children. And also, one of the people that he killed wasn't even a confirmed child molester. Yes, he was a registered sex offender, but we don't know what that means. Can the killings of sex offenders still be justified even though they were in prison, locked up, who knows when they would get out? I mean, I'm just going around all the theories. You guys will have to let me know. Do you think that he is a vigilante? That he is a hero? Or that it doesn't matter who he's killed, he is still a murderer? I feel like I fall somewhere in the middle. Like, I do. I still feel like he is a murderer. I still feel like he needs to be punished. I still feel like he needs to be in prison. Like, I don't think he should be released. But I feel like the treatment of him has been a bit extreme. I don't know why he's kept in a glass cage. Like, why? Is he really that dangerous? Because the murder in Broadmoor, the murder in prisons, yes, he murdered people. But the thing is, doesn't that say more about the lack of security in these places? I just want to make it clear that I'm not condoning murder, by the way, but I'm also not on the side of the sex offenders. This case is difficult, okay? He clearly needs to be monitored, but does he need to be as monitored as he is? I mean, he's held in a glass cage. He has no privacy. Whenever he does go out of his cage, he is escorted by six prison guards. You have to go through 17 locked doors to even get to him. I mean, it does feel a bit dramatic. I know he has been labeled the most dangerous prisoner in the UK, but surely there are more dangerous people in prison in the UK than Robert Maudsley. I do feel like the treatment of him is a bit ridiculous. I do. I feel like the prison failed him. I feel like he needed help. He needed a lot of help before he even committed any murder. And what is possibly the most frustrating thing about this case is that he tried to get help. Before he committed his first murder, he was going to hospitals. He went to many hospitals asking for help. And if he was just given help, if he was given treatment, all of this could have been prevented. Also, the people that think that he he is a vigilante and he is a hero. I do disagree with, I do. I just feel like we can't allow one person to be judge, jury and executioner. The world cannot and should not work like that. And that brings us to the end of the episode on Robert Maudsley. And I do have a very quick but major update to this case since I first recorded it for a video for YouTube. In July of 2023, it was determined that Robert Maudsley would no longer be allowed any further appeals in regards to his release from prison, which means that he will now spend the rest of his life behind bars, most likely being held in his glass cage. So yeah, that is the update. Very short, but wow, that is a major update. So Robert Maudsley is never, ever going to be released from prison. Now, whether you agree with that or not, I think it really is a polarizing case. From the reaction that I got on YouTube, I think a lot of people actually support Robert Maudsley and do think that he should be released with help and supervision, of course. But a lot of people do think that Robert Maudsley has been treated unfairly. But then some people think, yeah, he should be kept behind bars for the rest of his life. I mean, he's murdered people. What makes Robert Maudsley judge, jury and executioner? So this case is definitely polarizing. People have very different opinions on today's case. But thank you so much, everyone, for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you enjoy the show, it would really mean a lot if you could leave a five-star review because it really does help out the podcast. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Room Studios, and I'll see you all in the next one. Bye.